1 Kings 18, and while you're turning there, our last lesson took us through the chaos of the religion of Baal with its priests working themselves up into a bloody religious froth, cutting themselves, hollering all day, hoarse, no doubt, and doing all of that to try to cause a non-existent God to set their sacrifice on fire. And what made it worse is Elijah or Baal had none of the attributes of the Lord God. And finally, Elijah, as the type of Jesus, said to those who were in attendance, Come near unto me. Elijah repaired a broken down altar, which we will now study in the next verse, put the wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood, and said, now we'll stop right there, he put the wood in order, so he lumberjacked all by himself, didn't he? And he didn't have a nice pulling or Husqvarna to cut wood with. He did it with whatever crude means he was afforded in those days. And it says, and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood. Again, all by himself as far as these singular pronouns are concerned. And now in the middle of verse 33, he said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. This is the first time Elijah has enlisted the help of anyone. And you might say, well, maybe he was tired or maybe he wasn't strong enough to fill these barrels. I don't think any of that's true at all. He was a pretty stout fella to be able to kill a bullock and cut it up, build this and put these stones on top of each other and all that he did before. He said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice. If you're taking notes, underline or underscore that word burnt. We'll get back to it in just a moment. Why would he command anyone to help him here for the first time? Let's just look at it very practically. The prophets of Baal had failed. And now they're looking at Elijah thinking, what kind of trick is he going to pull? How is he going to cause his sacrifice to be lit on fire? What's what's he going to do? And one of the things he could have done perhaps in their paranoia is to put some sort of flammable material in those barrels and pour it on, on the wood. Maybe sneak just a little bit in there, just enough to help it be lit, perhaps by some other method than God doing it himself. The doubters were looking for him to use trickery. and Or maybe Elijah would pour the water everywhere except on the wood. Maybe he'd pour it in the trenches and all around the altar. We don't really know. But by having others pour the water four barrels, and we'll see they did it again and again, having others pour the water on the sacrifice took away any doubt about whether the sacrifice and all of the altar and all of the wood were soaking wet. That's what he was aiming for. But I want you to notice here the word burnt. What is the word burnt? It's a past tense verb, isn't it? Well, here it's used as an adjective. But burnt 
burning, not to be burned, but burnt. It's a past tense word, and no part of this sacrifice had been touched by fire yet. What's he doing calling it burnt? That'd be like me saying this Kleenex is burnt. It's not. It hasn't been touched by fire. And yet Elijah called it a burnt sacrifice. And that word burnt is from a Hebrew word that is also translated ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T. As an ascending staircase would go up, that's the word ascent. It's also translated as two simple words, go up. So the burnt offering is one that goes up physically because smoke goes up this way, doesn't it? Unless it's acted upon by some other force like wind or a vacuum. But it generally goes up. And physically... That's what we see, but spiritually, that sacrifice goes up to the Lord. That's what it's supposed to do. It's not just to set something on fire and watch smoke rise in the air and say, oh, how wonderful the smoke went up in the air. No, this was a sacrifice that was going to be made to the Lord. So what great faith Elijah had. He was willing to stake himself upon the faithfulness of the Lord Not on his own ability to gain the attention of God, but on God's faithfulness to set this sacrifice on fire, even though it was wet. Let's look at verse 34. And he said, do it the second time. That is, fill those four barrels up with water and pour them again. Do it the second time, and they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran around about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. So three times this altar, the wood, the sacrifices, and the trenches were soaked with barrels of water, 12 of them in total. Once again, Elijah uses the words burnt sacrifice, but he doesn't say wet sacrifice, does it? Oh, it's wet. It's soaking wet. But it's a burnt sacrifice as far as he's concerned. The final outcome of this sacrifice is not that it's going to be a wet sacrifice, but a burnt sacrifice. And Elijah believed that by faith because he believed in what God would do. Now verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said... Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Now we're about 12 hours removed from when the Baal prophets began their show. They're still on scene, as we'll observe later, but they've lost their audience Nothing they did had a lasting spiritual effect on anyone. It was just a temporary feeling of emotional but empty zeal. Now you think about how long they spent doing all that they did to try to get the attention of their God Baal. Leaping on the altar and 
hollering out, O Baal, hear us, cutting themselves with knives and spears. And the people who followed them were no doubt worked up and stirred up, looking for something great to happen. Maybe they said, you should come to our church. We're, we have a dynamic pastor and we have dynamic worship services and dynamic this and that. So did the prophets of Baal. They had a, that was quite a dynamic worship service, wasn't it? <laughs> but that emotional stirring up is what many so-called preachers are good at. They can get people whipped up into a frenzy. Listen, the person I want doing that is the football coach. Get those players fired up for the game. Keep them fired up as long as you can. Maybe they'll play hard for you. But that's not what I want in my preacher. Oh, I want a preacher with passion to preach the gospel and to teach God's word. But I don't need one up here hollering, screaming, running around, making a show, jumping up on the altar of Baal. All of that as a substitute for teaching truth. But once they're, with all that dramatic, loud, flashy effort, these kinds of preachers draw in their congregation with the promise of spiritual revival and enlightenment, healing. But once their worship service is over, and they go to their homes, these deluded, shallow people, are just as ignorant of their Bibles and just as far from God as they were when they walked in. And in many cases, they are just as lost as they were and undone as they were when they got there. They don't go away, Christians, many of them. They don't go away knowing more about their Bible. You know, it's a great question for you to ask someone when they tell you how wonderful their church is. You don't have to be ugly to them. Say, oh, that's good to hear. How long have you been there? Perhaps they've been there 5, 10, 15 years. Ask them, do you know more about your Bible than you did when you started there? And see what their response is. It tells tells me everything. I don't care about your water slide and your softball team and all the other things. I want to know if you know more about your Bible than you did before. Did these people who went to the show of the Baal prophets know their Bibles any more than they did when they got there? No, they didn't. Did they know any more about God? Were they drawn closer to God than when they got there? No, they weren't. There were many like that at that place where the prophets of Baal faced off with Elijah. Now look in verse 36, as about the middle of the verse, where Elijah begins his prayer. This isn't a very long prayer. Don't blink or you'll miss it. But it's a weighty, effectual, fervent prayer. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel. Now let's look at that for a moment. After Elijah called the people to come near to him, he begins his prayer by calling upon the only true God. Now, what were the prophets of Baal doing when they were leaping on the altar? They were calling on a specific God, weren't they? They said, oh, Baal, hear us. But Elijah was calling upon the one true God, specifically the God who is Lord over his covenant people, the children of Israel. 
And he said in his prayer, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel. So he reveals, Elijah reveals to us the purpose of this sacrifice and of his prayer. It's not enough that the altar of Baal never caught fire. That's not enough. That doesn't prove anything to the people who are there, the ones who walk by sight. And as of yet, neither was the altar that Elijah erected and on which he placed the wood and the, and the animal. That wasn't on fire either. So you have two altars that aren't on fire. So there must be something God does to show that not only is Baal not Lord in Israel, but that God is Lord in Israel. He's got to set a difference between the two. Because all of the, all these people are hearing right now is, well, your God's not really God. Well, yes, he is. No, your God's not really God. In their minds, that's all they're hearing. What a shame. That's where they got by not walking by faith. Look in the text again, verse 36. He said, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant. Why is this important? The word thy, that possessive pronoun we normally don't use, but we do in here. The word thy, if the people who were assembled there believed in many gods, Baal, the gods of the groves, etc., then they may think Elijah's God just happens to be a little better than Baal. They don't see him as God, Lord over all. And Elijah wants them to know that he is the servant of the Lord God of Jehovah, or the Lord God Jehovah, and not some other. So it's important that he say, I am thy servant. That's him committing himself to the service of the Lord. He put his neck out there on the chopping block right here. So all these other people are serving Baal, or they have halted between two opinions, not committing that God is Lord or Baal is Lord. They want to watch and see what happens. But not me, I am thy servant. And then the word servant. Once this great miracle is wrought, once it's accomplished, the word servant is important because these people are likely to fall down and worship Elijah. You say, oh, that, that wouldn't happen. He's already told them he's servant of the Lord, and it's the God on whom he calls who will do all of this. Listen to Acts chapter 14, verses 11 through 18. If you're taking notes, Acts 14, 11 through 18. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycaonia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. 
Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities, from the Baal worship, unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in time past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without a witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. The people in Acts chapter 14 were already naming Paul and the apostles after their own gods. And did you know all that happened that brought this on? was that Paul healed a lame man. Man couldn't walk. Paul healed him. God healed him through the hands of Paul. And in the following passage, after what I just read you, Paul is stoned. And he appears to be dead. He's left for dead. But he rises up from that pile of stones, and he continues with his ministry. Now imagine if he had not corrected those people in Lystra, And told them, I'm not God. I'm like one of you. I'm a man of like passions. I have the same temptations in the flesh that you do. I struggle with sin just like you do. I'm one of you. Don't worship me. If Paul had not done that, the people already wanted to worship him as a God when he had healed a lame man. Imagine had they thought he died and could raise himself from the death, from the dead, what kind of worship they would have bestowed on him. But he corrected them. The people would have thought that Paul, not Jesus Christ, was God and raised himself from the dead. So going back to Elijah and taking what we learned there from the Acts chapter 14 passage, The miracle that would be done here where Elijah is would be much more dynamic, even pyrotechnic, flashy before the eyes of the people. And it was certain in their unstable minds and hearts that they would proclaim Elijah as God or the Son of God. Look what it took for them to do that in Paul's day the healing of a lame man. Oh, you must be God. No, I'm not God. And now Elijah is going to call down fire from heaven to consume a wet sacrifice. Oh, these people may follow him. Their minds were unstable. Their hearts were unstable. They followed doctrine as you do the wind when it changes. And then he said, we're back in verse 36 again, 
toward the end of the verse, and that I have done all these things at thy word. So what were those three things? He said he wanted it to be known that God was God in Israel, that he was God's servant, and that he had done all these things according to what God said, according to thy word. And this follows what was said about I am thy servant. If Elijah is a freelancer, just a rogue, a maverick, then the people might believe he was God and that he could summon his own miracles to be displayed at his will. But because he was a servant of the Lord, then what he did was what God commanded him to do. That's how you could tell a servant of the Lord. What he did was what God commanded him to do. He did it at thy word, at God's word. Here's an example. The average human being does not like to be told that he's lost and undone without God or his son. He doesn't like to be told, especially religious people, he doesn't like to be told that in his lost condition he will go to the lake of fire for all eternity. He doesn't like to be told there's only one way and it's not one way to be accepted by God and it's not the way that he believes. People don't like that. So when we witnessed the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, if we're doing it because we just feel motivated that day to go out and try to tell 10 people, we're going to lose that motivation pretty quick the first time somebody scolds us. How dare you be so narrow-minded? How dare you bring bad news to me like, that's not true, that's your opinion. But if we do it at thy word, as Elijah did it at thy word, you think he was a popular man that day? No, he was very unpopular. And he would continue to be unpopular after this day, as we'll study. But when we witness about the gospel to someone, we're doing it at his word. And that's what makes it okay when somebody doesn't want to hear what you have to say. You shake the dust off, and you go to the next door, don't you? Don't argue with them, and it's so hard not to do. It's it's like politics. You hear somebody say something, and you say, now you know that doesn't make sense. You know that's going to hurt you worse than it's going to hurt the people who are making the law, and they won't listen, and you think, well, if I could just sit them down and make them listen, Put a gag in their mouth where they can't talk. Make sure their ears are cleaned out so they can hear me. Maybe then. Well, you know what? You give yourself too much credit because the devil is a lot stronger than you are. And God's the only one who's stronger than he is. So we have a job. Elijah had a job, and that is to do it at thy word, Lord. Do it at thy word. Obedience to the gospel and the preaching of it Obedience to the words of the Bible are all done at thy word, at the word of the Lord, and because of the word of the Lord. Let's look at verse 37 now. The prayer continues, hear me, O Lord. What did the prophets of Baal say? Hear us, O Baal. (laughs) Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. 
Elijah appeals to God to hear him for two reasons. One, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God. And much can be learned by looking at the construction of this phrase, of these words and these groups of words to see what they emphasize. First, that this people, that this people, as distinguished from all the other people in the world, those who were not there, it says that this people may know, may know, and that's from the Hebrew word yada. Have y'all ever heard somebody say that yada yada yada? Well, that's actually of Hebrew origin. And it's used widely. It has a wide uh, wide range of uses in the Old Testament. And in its definition, and by looking at some of its other translations into English, there is an implication that it it involves understanding. It's not, yeah, I know, I know, which means, oh, I've already heard that before. Yada, here, as used, means not only do I know it, but I have an understanding of it. I get it. I really get what you're saying. It's not a trivial knowledge, but it's an understanding of something that must be perceived to be known. If you're going to know it like this, like Elijah says, that they may know, that doesn't mean that they may hear this option that they have. No, that they may understand it, that they may truly perceive it. Elijah doesn't ask God to show them who the God of the day is as if tomorrow it could be Baal or some other god. But to have a true understanding, a true perception of this phrase, thou art the Lord God. That's what he wanted the people to know. Thou art the Lord God. Why was that so important? Because they had halted between two opinions about who the Lord God was. And secondly, Elijah appeals to God to hear his prayer For this reason, that the people would know, quote, that thou hast turned their heart back again. So I want you to hear my prayer, Lord, that they may know your God and that they may know that you've turned their heart back again. It's you who's turned their heart back again. The word turned has the idea of going from one place to the other. And we might think of turning as just spinning around in a circle. And that's, you could constantly turn one way or the other and do that. That's not the idea here. We learn by looking further into that word that it is not only going from one place to another, but it's going in a certain direction. When you're trying to tell the driver of your car where to go and you say, turn up here, what's the next thing you have to tell them? You turn left or right, don't you? You just say, well, just turn up here, and it's a four-way intersection or a five-way or six-way intersection like over there at Kingsley and Centerville and Broadway. They don't know where to turn. So it, it implies direction as well. So that gives you maybe a little stronger idea. We look at some other Old Testament passage where this Hebrew word for turned is used, and we see it also translated as the word led. God led his people 
Now, you think God leads his people blindly? No, he leads them in a direction. He has a destination for them. And it's also used or translated as the word remove. Remove. It's easy enough to understand the word turned when it's used in travel. But it also has an application to spiritual lodging as well. Listen for the word remove. In Numbers chapter 36, verses 5 through 9, just a quick note on the setting there. Numbers 36, 5 through 9, there were daughters of Zelophehad. He was an Israelite, and he was dead, and they were not married. They had no husbands, and they had property. And if they, under the way the law was, if they married into another tribe, let's say they were from the tribe of Simeon, and they married into the tribe of Levi or Judah, then their property went with them, and it became the property of the tribe of Levi or Judah, no longer of the tribe from which they came. So here's what the verses say. And Moses commanded the children of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the sons of Joseph hath said well. This is the thing which the Lord doth command concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry to whom they think best. Only to the family of the tribe of their father shall they marry. So he said, don't marry in these other tribes. Marry in the tribe of your father. There's enough eligible men in there. You can marry one of them. So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove or be turned from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter that possesseth an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be wife unto one of the family of the tribe of her father, that the children of Israel may enjoy every man the inheritance of his fathers. Neither shall the inheritance remove from one tribe to another tribe, but every one of the tribes of the children of Israel shall keep himself to his own inheritance. So let's consider what we learned about the word remove there and apply it to our text. What is Elijah praying here? It is that God would answer his prayer and that the people would know that God turned. He removed their hearts back again. That is, it was God's perfect will that his people should not remove from God to Baal, back to God, back to Baal. That was not his perfect will. And, or to another God, and so on. And as the property of the daughters of Zelophehad should remain with the tribe of their father, so the hearts of the children of Israel should remain with the tribe of their Lord. The covenant people belong to God. They don't move from camp to camp. Now, let's look at verse 38. So the prayer's over with. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. A short prayer resulted in a mighty answer. A prayer doesn't have to be long to be effectual, does it? James 
chapter 5, verse 16, and if you're writing it down, put the lowercase letter B because it's the second half of the verse. This is how we are scripturally honest about taking our notes and saying what's in the Bible. If I don't give you the entire verse, I'm going to tell you. It's not the entire verse. James 5, 16, B, where it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It does not say the effectual lengthy prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The length of our prayers vary, don't they? When you're in your prayer closet, you pray as long and as often and about as many things as you want to. That's your time with God. And But when you're called on to pray over the hot Thanksgiving meal, it's just a hint for you. You're not in your prayer closet at that time. If you're asked to say the blessing, thank God for the day and the food. You don't need to be there 15 minutes and cause everyone to have to use the microwave. That doesn't make your prayer any more or less effectual, does it? Elijah's prayer needed to be effectual, not lengthy and effectual it was. Because he said the fire of the Lord fell. The fire of the Lord, not of Baal. Not of Elijah, but the fire of the Lord, and that's the name Jehovah, the self-existing one, the one who made fire in the first place. He's the only one who can send fire. And it says it fell. That is, it came down from the same place as the fire and brimstone upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because it was sent from God. And it said about this fire in verse 38, and consumed the burnt sacrifice. Boy, we have some stuff to learn right here with the word consume. This is so good. Consumed is usually translated as the word eat. Now, when we're trying to teach our children to hurry up at the supper table, we don't say, you need to consume. So we say, you need to eat. We've said that a million times, haven't we? You need to eat. And what do we mean? We generally mean you need to finish your plate. You need to eat everything on your plate. Children, uh, I've never seen any proof of it with x-rays or medical science, but children claim to have two stomachs, one for that food and then one for dessert, right? They don't understand that when they say I'm full, to us that means you've consumed it all and you don't want any more. But that's for another, another lecture. The first time we see this word, Hebrew word, Translated for consume, it is translated as the word eat. And it's found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Genesis 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Now we learned by the word consume in our text that this sacrifice that Elijah offered was completely pleasing to the Lord. Because he ate it completely. He consumed it completely. No, God didn't take a spoon and dip it down and eat the sacrifice that way. This is a spiritual truth we're learning by using the imagery of a physical truth. One we do every day. I hope you're able to eat something every day. And the use of the senses to describe how the Lord responds to our obedience or our disobedience is shown throughout the Bible. If you think hard enough, you'll think of some places where you can say, oh, yeah, the Lord heard their cry 
There you go. He heard it. Or the Lord saw and was pleased or was displeased. And here we're dealing with the senses of taste, which involve the sense of smell as well for us. In fact, Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 21, listen for the smell. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. Now listen for this sense of smell, except it's used in another way. This is not good. The word stink. Amos chapter 4, verse 10. Amos chapter 4, verse 10. God said, I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with the sword and have taken away your horses, and I have made the stink of your camps to come up unto your nostrils. Yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. How does the Lord know it stinks? Because he can smell everything, spiritually and physically. And putting all of this together concerning the, the senses, we learn that the sacrifice that the Lord consumed here in our text was one that pleased the Lord's taste. It tasted good to him. It smelled good to him. It looked good. What he heard in, in the prayer that Elijah made was good. It sounded good to him. And so he answered as he did. Now listen to this. This is so good. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 17. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thou works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, now listen for this, this is the taste, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We learn from the Revelation passage that God will vomit, spew the lukewarm church out of his mouth. And what was Israel at this time in history but a lukewarm church? Today, God, tomorrow, Baal. Next week, Moloch. Why would God ever allow fire to fall on the sacrifice of Baal, knowing it would be a stench in his nostrils? But Elijah's sacrifice, the one by which the people would know the Lord is God, and that he has turned their hearts back to him, that sacrifice tasted good. It smelled good to the Lord. And with that, we'll stop, and we'll... Hopefully finish out this verse, this thought, next week. Any questions about the lesson? Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you for the good attention and the good attendance this morning. For those who came to hear your word, we pray that your spirit would teach us the truths that you would have us to glean from this passage. And Father, that we would settle in in our hearts 
that what we do and what we say would be done at thy word, just as Elijah. In Jesus' name, amen.